0: And so, with that being said, I want to invite you to take your Bibles with me and turn to the first, <clears throat> the, the first epistle of Peter, First uh, Peter chapter 3, and I want to invite you to, if you are able, stand just, just once again for the reading of God's Word. Here in First Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 18, we read this, for Christ also suffered, Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Why don't you join me in a word of prayer? Father God, Father, we come before you in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, Father God, we just thank you for every good, true, spiritual blessing that we have in Christ Jesus, mediated to us by the Holy Spirit. Father God, we just pray that your name would be honored and glorified in this worship service tonight. Father God, I just pray that the truth of your word would be made known. I pray the Holy Spirit would illuminate this truth to all of my listeners Here tonight. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Thank you, and you may be seated. Now, the passage of scripture that I just read to you and that we are going to be going through tonight is not likely to be found on any throw pillows or fridge magnets, tattooed on anyone's arms. Uh, This is undoubtedly a passage of scripture that truly is one of the most controversial and heavily debated texts in the entire Bible, especially in the New Testament. It is is a passage which Christians for centuries have struggled with trying to make sense of it. It has even led to certain well-known figures in church history to just simply throw their hands and say, "I, I don't even know it's being said here. And it is also a text that is commonly used by Roman Catholics and others to promote a sort of works-based salvation over against the true biblical teaching of justification by faith. And because of the theological and exegetical complexities of this text, Many pastors, if they were preaching through the book of First Peter, they would, they would just skip it or they would just leave it as a footnote or, or something like that to just avoid the difficulty because, listen, getting into all that stuff is, would just be long and drawn out and that would be a lot of information and, and you know, we don't want to bore our people, we want to do uh, something else. But, but I think we all realize that to do such a thing, would bring more harm than good. If we're Christians, and if we love the Word of God, and if we love the truth of God, we come to a passage like this and say, this is not as simple and cut and dry as John 3, 16, or the second or the first and second greatest commandments. There's something more going on here. And so what we want to do is we want to pay the respect to the Word of God that His Word deserves. And we want to we want to look at this text. We want to spend time in this text. The reality is, well, I should say this. There are two kinds of hard texts in the Bible. There are texts that are hard because they, they are difficult to interpret. And then there are texts that are hard because they're not necessarily difficult to interpret. They're just difficult to embrace or difficult to apply. They go against what my flesh would... would would want to say or how I would want to live but, or what I think would be right and wrong. And so it's not that I don't understand what's being said, it's that I just don't like it. Well, this is not necessarily one of those texts. This is a text that, is, that the difficulty is in understanding basically what it's saying. And so we're going to deal faithfully with this because our aim in this service is to honor God, is to honor the Word of God. And, and, and one of the things that I've found in studying Scripture is that when we come to texts and passages that seem to be difficult to interpret or, you know, this text over in James seems like, seems like it's contradicting what I read here in Paul and, and these different things. The reality is, is the Bible doesn't contradict. And so when we dig into these matters, sometimes it is in going through these difficult, hard texts that we uncover some of the truest beauties that are in the Word of God. And we are going to be an advantage, at an advantage in this study tonight because, as we understand, this passage did not just drop out of heaven and fall out of the air. We know it is in a context. It's in a book. And, and we've been going through this book, leading up to this point, and we're, we're going to finish this book. So that will be to our benefit As we, if you've been in these services, we've been through a lot of the contextual information that will be necessary for us. And so, that being said, I am going to do some, uh, make some brief comments just to bring us up to speed. As I said, tonight I'm going to be preaching from what I will admit is a more difficult text, and so it will be to your benefit to listen closely. I know some of you like taking notes, I want to encourage that, but what's Most important is that if you do happen to have a copy of God's Word, I want to encourage you to follow along with the biblical text. For while I believe that my interpretation and my understanding is correct, you should always judge what I say and what another minister should say by the Word of God. And so before you start tuning out thinking that he's getting ready to just give you some long, drawn-out theological discourse... And and some boring lecture here. I I just want you to be aware that, um, as I've said already, some of the richest and deepest truths of Scripture are found in these more difficult areas. And I do believe that this text is beautiful. The only way we're going to uncover that beauty is if we look at it and if we deal with it. I believe that these words are inspired by the Holy Spirit. And so, that being said, it is, of course, my prayer that the Holy Spirit would guide us, would illuminate this truth to us. It's my sincere sincere and utmost prayer He would do that for us tonight. Help help us to see the divine glory of these words, that they might be spiritual food for our souls and an encouragement to us as we live our Christian lives. Now, before we dig into the particular verses, as I've already said, we should understand the surrounding context of this passage. And... As I have often reminded you and will continue to remind you as we go through this book, and this is sort of what Al was hinting at, is this theme that Peter establishes right from the get-go where he addresses his audience, his readers, as the elect exiles, that the redeemed people of God who are, are living as sojourners and exiles in a strange and foreign land that doesn't comport with their values, which is hostile against them, and, and ultimately this world is not their home. One of the reasons why I felt such a desire to go through this book of 1 Peter is because I think the situation that Peter's writing to is so similar to the day and age in which you and I live. The Christians Peter is writing to are experiencing a social climate that is so... Familiar to us, while there's not the deadly, lethal, government enforced persecution that we would eventually see under Nero in the early church, where Peter would eventually lose his life, there nevertheless is still an overwhelmingly hostile attitude um, towards believers in Christ. There remains a societal disdain against Christians. And this is nothing more than an expression of the hatred that exists in the heart of sinners who are at enmity with God. And they express that hatred towards Christians because the Christian is, has the aroma of Christ present within them. And so Peter, he gives us not only instruction but also wonderful encouragement as to how Christians are to behave and react against this hostility. And for the second time now, Peter has shown us that Christ is our example for how we ought to behave. Christ, when he was reviled, he did not revile back. He did not pay back evil for evil. Though he suffered greatly and more unjustly than any man who ever lived, he nevertheless did not sin against those who sinned against him. Peter shows us that to suffer for righteousness' sake, is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Believers in Christ are to live in this radically different way to the point where it becomes plainly obvious about them that that there's something different. Which would lead people to want to ask the question as we find in verse 15 here in chapter 3 to ask the believers to give a defense for why it is that they have this hope in them. Because if a natural man, reviled against, would revile back, would re- retaliate back, but the Christians, not that they always do this perfectly, but they are instructed to behave in such a way that it's obvious, like, hey, you're not responding to this the way that we would expect someone to. What, what's, what's going on in there? And that is because Christians have an, an eternal hope within them. What Peter says in chapter 3 verse 17 is, for it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. He's made this comparison earlier. If someone is persecuting me or if they're being hostile or evil against me and it's because I, I did something wrong that, or something sinful, there's no glory in that. There's no, there's no reason to be proud or to be boastful and, Oh, you, you know, see, this is just because the world doesn't understand me or blah, blah, blah. It's like, no, they're, they're, they're criticizing you because of you were doing wrong. What Peter says is that's not what we want to be criticized for. We want to be criticized. We want to suffer for doing good. We want to suffer for righteousness' sake. And so verse 17 does, does two things. One, it in a sense sums up the, the main point of all we were reading that came before it. But the next thing it does is it introduces us to our passage tonight, verses 18 through 22, which we have acknowledged is is a difficult text. So that's why I give you this reminder of some of these things that we've gone over already because there's going to be a connection which will help us to understand properly what we are looking at tonight. And so once again, Peter in verse 17 makes the statement, for it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. <clears throat> and then in verse 18 he says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. We see those two words which open up this verse for Christ. You see, verse 17 makes it clear that it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing e- evil. Peter bases this truth in Jesus Christ. He says this is the way that Jesus lived. So we can count it a good thing when we suffer for doing good because Christ also suffered. Our model, our example is not a man who is wealthy, is not a man who had a, a, a massive fortune and, and an easy life, our example, our Savior, the one we look to, is a man who suffered his suffering specifically was for sins. He who was sinless died for sinners. What Peter says in this verse is "The righteous for the unrighteous." and Jesus is doing this work for the purpose that he might bring us to God, the one who is righteous. Condescends himself, he suffers to bring the unrighteous, the undeserving sinner to God. This is how the love of God is shown to us. Now, right off the bat, we have to just admit what a beautiful statement this is. Uh there, there are some commentators who would say that the sum and substance of the Christian faith is, is found all in that verse there. That Jesus suffered and died once for sins. The emphasis is that his death was once and for all. This morning in my Sunday school class, we were going through the book of Hebrews in sort of a rapid fashion. And one of the things I pointed out is what we see is the high priest in the Old Testament, they would go into the most holy place, they would offer their sacrifice, and they would leave. Then they'd have to come back next year to atone for their sins, then they'd have to come back, and they'd come back. When Jesus... Goes into the most holy place. What does he do? He remains. He stays there. Why? Because he accomplished his work. He accomplished his purpose. Nothing left needs to be done. There's nothing that you can add to it. There's nothing that you can detract from it. The Son of God accomplished what his purpose was on the cross. And he remained when he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Once and for all, he accomplished his purpose and full and nothing more needs to be done. Christ the righteous dies in my place as a sinner. He dies in the place of sinners, Christians who were the unrighteous that he might bring us to God. This, This is the very foundation for the hope that we as believers have. In verse 15, when asked for a reason for the hope that is in them, the believer can say, Oh, sir, have you not heard? Have you not heard about the wonderful good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ? Why, the perfect life that I could not live, He lived in my stead. And, and indeed, the death that was too stark for me to bear. Why, He indeed died for me as well. Oh, how I love Christ who did what I could not do, that I might be brought into sweet." An everlasting peace with God. It is no wonder, then, that Peter is going to use this as an explanation for why Christians are to look at suffering in a in a different way that we would in our natural state. The natural man says, "I don't, I don't want to suffer. I, I don't want to have pain. I don't, I don't want to struggle. I want." The easy life where things are just, just going right and I don't want to upset anyone or get involved in any of that. I, I don't want that. But, but look, we can give glory to God in our suffering. For the very foundation, Hebrews says that Jesus is the founder of salvation. The foundation, the very basis for what it means to be a Christian is that Jesus Christ suffered unjustly for us. Sometimes, I think about the fact, I wear a cross around my neck, except for when I'm working around saws and things like that, but most of the time I do. Why, why do I wear a first century Roman torture device around my neck as a religious symbol? You've, you ever think about that? This is a device that they would use to strap a criminal, nail him to a cross, after flogging him, they would raise him up on this piece of wood until he died. Why do, why do I wear this on my neck? Well, it's because I realized that the very foundation for my relationship with God, the life that I can live now in peace and in fellowship with him, is all due to the fact that God the Son went through this for me, and for a great many others as well. These are the words that must be shouted from the housetops. These are the words that must be proclaimed in the streets. Christians, in this hostile world that we live in, this is the message that we must be willing to declare and to defend, to stand up boldly for in truth and in love. Let it never be found of any of us that we would deny such a glorious truth. Let us never fail to admonish the lost world, those poor lost souls in our families and in our communities, not to neglect such a great salvation. Christian, this is the reason that you can be sure that you have a right standing before God. This is the reason that you can be sure your salvation is is accomplished. Never let the storms of this life discourage you. For Christ Jesus has given His life as a sacrifice for many. He has gone in to the highest heavens and sat down at the right hand of God and He lives ever to make intercession for all of His beloved people who come to Him by faith. Sometimes we lack assurance. And if you lack assurance, I say look to the cross. Christ Jesus died and not only that, but He was raised he rose again, not to die again. Sometimes, you know, people say, what's this, atheists will say, what's so special about the resurrection? You know, all kinds of people were resurrected around that time. You got Lazarus, you got Jairus' daughter, you got all you. what's so special about a resurrection? Listen, when Lazarus rose again, he died again. Jesus did not die again, he ascended to his father as proof that the work he did was not in vain, but that he accomplished it. He lives ever to intercede for all of his people. What does that mean? The high priest in the Old Testament, they would make a sacrifice and they would bring it before God. And this was the reason that God would forgive the sins of the people is because of the sacrifice. Jesus gives his own life as a sacrifice as he is our high priest. And he takes the sacrifice into God. And he says, God These are the people for whom I have died. And and God the Father accepts that sacrifice. That is the only reason anyone in this room can ever dream of going to heaven when they die. Can ever dream of being accepted by God. It's not because of what you did. It's not because of your righteousness. It's not because you're a good person. It's not because you, you went to church or you did these other things. It's because the man on the middle cross said that you could come in. Nothing shall separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. He is a perfect and complete and glorious Savior. So what we refer to in theology is the doctrine of substitutionary atonement, that when Jesus, the righteous, dies on the cross for the unrighteous, that he, having lived a perfect and sinless life, takes their sin upon himself, so that when he dies for them and suffers under the wrath of the Father for them, that by means of their faith in him they will be credited with his righteousness. And then they, having been justified by faith, have sweet peace with God, second Corinthians chapter five verse twenty one says, "For our sake, meaning for us He made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Christ takes the punishment and we get the blessing. Oh, how wonderful it is that Jesus Christ would die for sinners. Well, what a precious and undeserved gift. How often do we overlook this? We want to quick, as quick as we can get to the message of how does this apply to my life? What, how does this fit in with what I want to do? What is the life application of this? We need to slow down sometimes and say, can we worship God for God's sake? Can we just take a second to just admire his holiness? When Isaiah sees the vision of God and he, and he sees the angels who are singing holy, holy, holy. Isaiah doesn't sit there and go, yeah, but I mean, this is a lot of information. And so how does this apply to my life? No. He falls on his face and he says, woe is me, I am undone, for I am a man of unclean lips and I am of unclean people. It rocked his world just beholding the majesty and the holiness and the splendorous wonder of God. We need to just have some of that in our hearts. And so, verse 18 ends with this allusion to what we would call the the two states of Christ. That is His humiliation and His exaltation. If you're looking online, I titled this message, What Goes Down Must Come Up. That is going to be a consistent theme that we see here. And so, here I want to introduce you to this idea of the humiliation of Christ in the exaltation of Christ. He descends down, he condescends himself only to be victorious. Being put to death in the flesh, these are Peter's words, but made alive in the spirit. That is, in his humiliation, Christ Jesus condescends and humbles himself. For although he was in the form of God, he did not count it a thing to be grasped. And so he who was God and was with God in eternity and divine Glory and majesty takes on human flesh for the purpose of dying, and not just dying by any old means, but even death on a cross, a most humiliating method of torture and execution in the ancient world. This is his humiliation. He descends down to this level. But then we see his exaltation in that though he was stricken, pierced, dead, and buried, on the third day he rises. When it says he was made alive, In the Spirit, at the end of verse 18, this may refer either to the spiritual realm or spiritual activity, or perhaps more specifically, the Holy Spirit himself. Though he, referring to Christ, died in the flesh, he was made alive in the Spirit. Fitting once again with Peter's overarching theme that, given the fact that we are the elect exiles, sojourners, and strangers... We ought not be discouraged by our losses here in this physical and temporary world in light of the hope that we have in the grand promise of eternity. And so what verse 18 has to say is wonderful. It it is wonderful. It truly is. And I should not think that there would be any Christians that would take issue with what I have had to say so far. But let's look at those again at those last three words, which are what lead us into verse 19, which is where our controversy starts. Those of you who know me know I don't shy away from controversy, so we're going to press on. And Peter writes that Christ was made alive in the Spirit, verse 19, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Now, this is where we have all kinds of debate amongst theologians the question that everyone wants to ask is what on earth is this saying if you're a christian and, and you've ever read your bible and you've come to this verse before and have been frustrated wondering what on earth is it talking about what's going on here don't be discouraged you're, you're not alone this is we we've had back and forth on this for the past two thousand years and we're going to continue to do so as a matter of fact our great reformer Martin Luther, who if you know anything about Martin Luther, if you've ever read about him or read him, particularly his discourse with Erasmus on the bondage of the will, you may know that Luther had the reputation of being a very confident man. Some might even say that his level of confidence extended to arrogance. Nevertheless, the great reformer Martin Luther, who I mean, we celebrate him as this great hero who he nails his 95 theses to the castle church door in Wittenberg. He's on trial at the Diet of Worms and says, you know, my conscience is captive to the word of God. Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. He said these words to Erasmus. He said, to take no pleasure in assertions is not the mark of a Christian heart. Indeed, one must delight in assertions to be a Christian at all. He goes on to explain what he means. I mean, staunchly holding your ground, stating your position, confessing it, defending it, and persevering in it unvanquished. I mean, this was a guy who, he he knew his Bible, he knew theology. He was a confident, he was a willing warrior. He would go toe-to-toe with you in a theological matter. He was confident about his beliefs about Scripture. Yet here's what he said about verses 19 and 20. He said, that is as strange a text and as dark a saying as any in the New Testament, so that I am not yet sure what St. Peter intended. The man was honest. Our our brilliant, courageous, lion-hearted reformer just simply said, look, I have no idea what's going on here. And so, I should say this, I don't share Luther's view on the matter. I think that We can understand this, but I just want to say that if you're looking at this issue and you're confused about the different arguments and things, you know, don't be discouraged, but we are still going to, I'm going to pray that I can walk you through this and that we can have some understanding here. So like I said, I, I don't share Luther's view on the matter. I think that when we look at the text, especially in light of other biblical texts, we are able to see what is the meaning of these words. And so I just give you that illustration. I want you to, to feel okay about there being confusion around this verse. There are good, solid, faithful teachers who would disagree with my particular interpretation. My personal favorite theologian, some of you know, is John, a man by the name of John Calvin. I disagree with his interpretation on this verse. As a matter of fact the majority of modern Bible commentaries would disagree with me and Calvin. So already we have multiple views coming up. There are also plenty in the early church such as Augustine and many today who who would side with me, so I'm not just coming at this from a completely different angle. And and as I've said, this is not a definitional sandbox issue. That also doesn't mean it's not important. So... First things first, let's just simply look at the language here. Peter says that Christ was made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. So what is going on there? Well, what he's saying is that the Spirit that Christ was made alive in, uh, which can either refer to just spiritual power in general, or it could refer specifically to the person of the Holy Spirit, um it was by this means that Christ went and proclaimed something to spirits who are in prison, so the same power that raises Jesus from the dead is the same power in which he goes and he does his thing so there's basically four questions that we want to answer here: one, who are these spirits? Two, what does it mean that they are in prison three what Did Christ proclaim to them? And for what does it mean that he went and proclaimed to them? Now, if you remember, what I've gone over last week, our three rules of Bible study are context, context, context. So before we can answer, we just have to keep reading. And in verse 20, we read, referring to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. So to answer our first question, who are the spirits in verse 19? They are those who, just to quote Peter, formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared. So this is where the debates start. So He's referencing Noah, and you're familiar with the story of Noah and the ark. So, if we go back to Genesis chapter six, just before the narrative begins to tell us of the familiar story of story of Noah and the ark and the two animals of each kind, and which you know we all draw pictures of when we're kids, even though no one really explains to us what it means, we just you know we draw the picture. Uh, the telling of this narrative begins with the description. Of the sin and depravity of the human race. Now I see an interesting parallel. Romans chapter 1 describes the depravity of man being particularly and especially highlighted in in homosexual relations because, at their very core, it it is something which goes against nature, It's, it's, it's against the created order. And we see almost a similar thing happening all the way back in the 6th chapter of Genesis. Homosexuality is not what's in view, but there is another kind of unnatural sexual activity. We read in Genesis chapter 6, "...when man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose." keep reading and it says when the sons of god came into the daughters of man they bore children to them these were the mighty men who were of old the men of renown the lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually the story goes on god instructs noah to build the ark take two animals of every kind so on and so forth and so the issue that is so relevant to our conversation is about these sons of God who were having relations and children with the daughters of men. Are these the spirits Peter's referring to? Or is Peter referring to human spirits? Because that word spirit in verse 19 can refer to you know, the spirit of an individual or it could also refer to an angelic being. So there's a difficulty there. Now, most commentators will want to say that it's only one or the other. So some commentators will say Peter is only referring to the Elohim, the the sons of God, perhaps their offspring, but he's not talking about humans at all. Then you have other guys who would want to say, nope, Peter's not talking about the Elohim. He's only talking about humans. And so when I explain to you my position more fully, I would be more in line with the guys who would say Peter's only talking about humans, but, but I also don't think it's one or the other. I don't think he's excluding the Elohim, the sons of God, there. Why? Well, the, Peter's point in verses 19 and 20 is on disobedience. Those who did not obey in the days of Noah... Well, yes, obviously we read about these spiritual beings who are acting wickedly and sinning in those days. When you go back to the passage in Genesis, the emphasis is not on their sin. The emphasis is on our sin. The emphasis is on the sin of mankind. That's the point of the whole passage, is that mankind has become so sinful and so corrupted that God is going to unleash this massive punishment when we read that the sons of God are having sexual relations with the daughters of men, the point of that is just to illustrate how sinful mankind was becoming. That these women were exchanging natural relations for those which were unnatural. And again, I I see a connection there to Romans chapter 1. And so, when the Lord floods the earth, The primary purpose he gives us is to wipe out sinful men. The the point of the passage is the sin and depravity of human beings specifically. And so when Peter references those who were disobedient in the days of Noah, I think we can include the sons of God, the Elohim, but you absolutely cannot exclude humans from this. It's not appropriate given the context of Genesis. And so, I feel this right now, and I grant you that this is probably deeper than what you're used to hearing from the pulpit. I, I'm aware of that. I promise you it's all going to be okay. We're, we're going to get through this. And so, so you might, might be wondering, what does this have to do with anything? Why, why does it matter if Peter is talking about humans or not? Well, that is because it, it, that affects how we understand and interpret what verse 19 says that Christ went and proclaimed to these spirits in prison. There are people to take that to mean that between Jesus' death and resurrection, he descended down into Hades or Hades to preach some kind of message of victory over the damned who were at war against God in their lives. And so the argument from those people is, well, if Peter is only talking about humans, it would make no sense for Peter to specifically be addressing, or for Jesus rather, to only address people who happen to be alive at the time of Noah. And so that's why people who hold to that interpretation, their interpretation demands that Peter be exclusively talking about the sons of God, the Elohim, and not humans. But as I have said, to rule out human spirits is to completely disregard and ignore the entire point of the passage in Genesis that Peter's alluding to. For anyone who has read Genesis 6-9, through 9, the flood was instituted for the specific purpose of bringing judgment upon the corruption and sin of mankind. And so the objection that is raised to that would be, well, Logan, you just said it would make no sense for Jesus only to be for him to descend into Hades and to preach to this select group of people. And to the hypothetical person who would raise that objection, I'd I'd say, yeah, you're right, which is why I don't believe he did. And and so for starters, I just want to submit to you that it is the plain teaching of Scripture that between Jesus' death and resurrection, he was not with lost souls, he was not with the damned, but he was with his Father. Why would I say such a crazy thing? Well, first of all, I just want to establish that Scripture teaches that there is is a separation between where the damned go and where the saved go. Luke chapter 16, Jesus' own words make this clear in referring to Hades, which is that intermediate state between now and the resurrection. There is a distinction between where the damned and the saved are. The damned are in a place of torment, and the saved are in a place of comfort. And then later on, when Jesus is hanging on the cross, and it's wonderful, Al, you brought this uh, story up earlier, we meet the repentant criminal who asks Jesus to remember him when he comes into his kingdom. And what does Jesus say? He says, today, you will be with me in paradise. What a, a beautiful, beautiful story. And so the damned are not in a place that you can compare to paradise So wherever Jesus is going, it's not with them. And then before he breathes his last breath, and I think this is the verse that settles it, he cries out, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Jesus, having metaphorically descended into hell in the pain and anguish he suffered on the cross, taking on the wrath of his Father, does not need to go where those were who were waiting to go to literal hell. He does not need to go and do any more work to accomplish our redemption. Why? He does it all on the cross. And so he doesn't descend into Hades. He goes and he's with his father and he sits down at the right hand of the majesty on high in a place that's likened to paradise. So okay, well if that's true, then what's going on in Peter? Well, what the text says in verse 19 is that Jesus, in the Spirit, and I think that is very important for us to notice, in the Spirit went and preached or proclaimed to the spirits in prison. But that verse, does, it does not follow necessarily that he went to the prison to do it. It just says that in the Spirit he went to them. Now remember, verse 20 makes it clear, this is specifically talking about those who were disobedient in the days of Noah. They were the ones Jesus proclaimed to, and now if, so if you remember back to chapter one, we read that the Old Testament prophets prophesied, that is, they delivered revelation and messages from God according to what the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating, and so what I'm submitting, and so what is saying is that Jesus Christ, by means of the Spirit, is preaching through Old Testament saints. Perhaps you're beginning to see the connection. What Christ proclaimed to the spirits in prison, he did so in the Spirit. The Old Testament prophets spoke according to what the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating. We also read in Second Peter that Peter says, Noah was a herald of righteousness. When we put all these things together, hopefully you're tracking. I know this is a lot to take in, but hey, we're going through this book. We're going to deal with what the text says. I know this is a lot to take in, a lot to think about, but hopefully when you look at it and you examine all these different things, essentially what I am saying that the text is saying is this. Jesus spoke through Noah, proclaiming a message of righteousness to those who were disobedient while the ark was being prepared, and that their spirits are now in prison. They are damned. That is my view. That is the view of St. Augustine. That is the view of Theodore Beza, who is Calvin's successor in Geneva. And to be honest with you, up until modern times and modern scholarship, that has pretty much been the majority view of the Protestant church. Uh, Although, like I said, that is no longer the case with some newer scholarship. But, you know, the most difficult part of this interpretation is the fact that the text says he proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Not to the spirits who are now in prison. Which the NASB includes that word now, but the word is not actually in the original Greek. But this is not sufficient grounds to refute all of the argumentation I've just presented. It is more than appropriate in common language and speaking to speak of a person or a group of people doing something using a descriptor that doesn't necessarily apply to them at the time of the incident. For instance, if I say to you, my dad was born in 1980, I'm telling the truth. That is an accurate, that is an appropriate statement to make that anyone who engages in language regularly can understand. But it is not true, although my dad was born in 1980, it is not true that at the time he was born he was my dad. That's obvious. And, And you understand that. Well, that's sort of the same thing that Peter is doing here. Christ proclaimed to the spirits in prison... Were they in the prison when he was proclaiming this message to them? No, but that's where they are now. So it is appropriate to describe them in that way. So I understand that was a lot to take in. Trust me, there's a lot more we could get into. There are other views that I did not mention because they're just not really held by a whole lot of people and so they're not so relevant. Now you might be wondering, what does this have to do with everything else that's going on in 1 Peter. I mean, Peter's, you know, he's been telling us about we're the exiles, we're sojourners, strangers in this life, suffering for righteousness' sake, all these things. Then he just wanders off and starts talking about spirits in prison. Well, if we keep reading, I think we will see our answer. I think we will see how this is all connected. Verse 20 ends with, in which, referring to the ark, a few, that is, eight persons were brought safely through water. And then it is on this point that we go to our other most controversial verse in verse 21, which says, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, like I said, what we were just talking about a moment ago in verses 19 through 20 it is a subject that a lot of people would disagree on. And I said it's, it's not a definitional issue. In other words, I don't believe that someone is not saved just because they disagree with my, my particular view of the matter. But that's not really the case with this particular controversy, with this verse. You see, the interpretation of this text that you will hear from Roman Catholics and the like, is heretical. It destroys the meaning of the gospel. And so that's why it's so important not to just skip over this, but to walk through it and to understand what's being said so that if we're ever pressed on this issue, as I have been by friends of mine who are in these false churches, we can actually have a meaningful conversation. So you will hear this verse, verse 21, being used over and over again against the traditional Reformed doctrine of justification by faith. So it's very important that we can understand what's being said here so we can respond to those claims. And just like we did with the difficult texts a minute ago, we're just going to look at what's being said, we're going to allow the text of Scripture to speak for itself, so let's just Just look at what's being said here. The first thing we read is baptism, which corresponds to this. Now, if you ever engage with a Roman Catholic on this verse, make sure you understand what is being referred to when it says baptism, which corresponds to this. It's obviously referring to the eight persons being brought safely through the floodwaters in the ark. The phrase corresponds to this in the original language is antitypus, which, from which we get the theological word antitype. So we are seeing that the story of Noah's Ark is a picture or is a type of baptism, which the baptism is the antitype. So this is relevant to understanding what is being said in this verse. The story of Noah's Ark is a story of God selecting or I'll use the word electing a particular comparatively small group of people and providing them with a method of salvation from his wrath which he would pour out on many. So verse 21 says, baptism which corresponds to this now saves you. Now, one of my best friends that that I've known him since, I I think we were in the third grade together, he, when we were growing up, his family were Baptists. They were in a Baptist church. started getting a little bit older, and I think probably around the time we graduated, he started going to a Roman Catholic church, and then he didn't like what the Pope was doing, so he left the Roman Catholic church and went to the Eastern or Russian Orthodox church. And uh, so we obviously have significant foundational differences in our thinking. And unlike the popular notion of, well, you shouldn't talk about religion or Politics are difficult issues. We don't think like that, and and so we do engage on these things because they're important. And so I remember one time, him and I were having a conversation, and this is the verse that he brought up. So this is the verse that probably people will bring up to you. And so we both have our Bibles out, and I'm just reading the text, and I say, you know, verse 21, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. And when I said, which now saves you, he said, stop, stop right there. He's like, he's like, Logan, Logan, it's right there. Just stop, just stop reading it. it. It says it right there. And I said to him, look, that's bad Bible study. That's not what we do. I mean, does Peter stop there? Or does the verse have a meaning that must be interpreted in light of what came before it, in light of what comes after it? I mean, is this something that's in a, a context? Or is it just this one little phrase? It's not just the one little phrase. So we don't stop in the middle of the verse and come up with our interpretation. We have to read the rest of it. By the way, if your interpretation demands you to ignore the last half of the verse, might be a sign your interpretation is not, not biblical. And so does Peter stop there? Well, no, no he, he doesn't. He keeps going on. So if we're going to understand him properly, we have to keep reading the text. Baptism which corresponds to this, now saves you. Peter's going to qualify his statement. He says not not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's, it's almost as though Peter is realizing that what he is saying is difficult, because he very, very quickly, after making the statement, "Baptism now saves us goes on immediately to clarify what he means, saying not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So let's just think, think about this for a minute. Baptism, in the original language, baptism is, is just the word that means immersion. Baptism literally just means to take something and to momentarily dip it in water. And so, think about Peter's language. Not as a removal of dirt from the body. It's not the the physical act of putting your body in the water so as to physically remove any dirt that might be on you that is saving you. Peter specifically qualifies that in his statement. He says not as a removal of dirt from the body. Baptism does not save you as that. In other words, the physical act of baptism does not merit your salvation. Now, the immediate response is, well, Logan, you're just, you're twisting Scripture, and, and, and no, I'm not, I'm really not twisting the text, I'm just reading the text, allowing the text to speak for itself. So, it's being said, baptism which corresponds to Noah and his family being brought to safety in the ark through the waters, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So baptism saves not the physical act itself, but the appeal to God for a good conscience. So you have to ask the question, Well, what is an appeal to God for a good conscience? Well, to put it another way, an appeal to God for a good conscience is to ask God to make your conscience clean. What is this other than what happens when a sinner is convicted of their sin and they ask God to forgive them? When they put their faith, when they put their trust in the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ, Now, obviously, if you're having this conversation, you want to take them to the text which so plainly teach the doctrine of justification by faith. Ephesians chapter 2, 8 and 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Jesus Christ himself says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Uh, there, there was an old preacher, and uh, he, this was before some of modern translations, and, and he read this, this text from Jesus, and he says, Whoever believes in him who has sent me hath eternal life. Half. H-A-T-H. That spells got it now. And I, that's, that's, what, that's the, what the reality is. If you believe, you have eternal life you don't believe and then need to accomplish work so as to earn god's favor thinking you're so self-righteous that you can tip the scales and you can work up righteousness and show god that god i i'm a good person when jesus christ the sinless son of god dies on the cross as a sacrifice to forgive sinners so it's not By work. I don't need to really go on citing verses. The teaching of Scripture is plain on this point. Men and women, sinners, are saved by grace through faith, not by anything of their own doing, not by works, not by merit, not because you're a good person, not because you went to church, and not because you were baptized either. There's no righteousness that a sinner can conjure up within themselves. It is only by believing in the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. This is what Peter has in view when he talks about appealing to God for a good conscience. This does not come from the physical act of baptism, the removing of dirt from the body, but yet it comes from another source entirely. The teaching of Scripture is plain on this point as well. Romans chapter 3 teaches that no one in their natural state seeks God. Romans chapter 8 says, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. There is no, no work that you can do physically or naturally that is going to miraculously change someone's heart so that they are in a new disposition to seek God and to please God. Therefore, The appealing to God for a good conscience is a gift of the Holy Spirit and it is this gift of grace. It is this gift of salvation which saves us. That's what Peter is referring to. And if we're going to think that the Bible is consistent and we're going to believe all that it says, it's the only conclusion you can come to. So Peter, earlier in chapter 2, says so that when Jesus bears our sin in his body on the cross, that act that Jesus does is so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Paul teaches in Romans chapter 6 that we are united with Christ in his death and in his resurrection and that we die to sin and we live to God. It's the point that I'm trying to make here. Well, I kind of alluded to this earlier, so I'm going to bring it up again. If you remember, I was talking about the humiliation, the exaltation of Christ. Christ goes down only to come up again. Well, baptism is demonstrative of our faith in this way. Just as, and notice the connections here, Peter says that baptism corresponds to Noah and and the ark and all that. Just as Noah and his family... Go down into the flood waters, they are brought safely through the ark, which is a picture of Christ. Because by our faith, we go down with Christ in his death and come up with him in his resurrection. Then, in the waters of baptism, we go down into the water, our death, and we come up again to walk in newness of life. Romans chapter 6 verse 4 confirms this interpretation by saying, "We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life." And I just want to make this point of application here. If you're a Christian, that means that you've died to sin. You have died to sin and you've been raised again to walk in newness of life. Are you walking in newness of life? Now you've already heard me well enough on this point. I'm not saying walk in newness of life or else you're a bad person and you won't earn salvation. No, salvation is a gift. But it is a conversion in that those who are saved are born again. So I want to ask you. Have you been born again? Have you died? Have you died? Have you been united with the death of Jesus Christ? Have you been raised again to walk in newness of life? This is a serious matter. It's not something to take like... Baptism is a picture of this. Baptism is a beautiful picture of the way in which God saves us. Baptism corresponding to Noah in the ark saves us, not the physical act of removing dirt from the body, but as it is demonstrating that inward spiritual faith-based appeal to God for a good conscience through not my own works, but the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I just want to make this comment. This is a Baptist church. I'm a Baptist. What does that mean? It means that I am a credo-baptist. I believe in believer's baptism. There are Protestants who are reformed, and they would agree with me a thousand percent on the doctrines of grace and, and justification by faith, but they don't practice credo-baptism. When I was an infant, I was baptized in a Presbyterian church. Presbyterian, they would believe all that I've said about justification by faith and, and not averse in these things, but they practice a, a sacrament of infant baptism. Well, we don't. Why don't we? Well, because Scripture is teaching us that baptism is a picture of salvation. And who has experienced salvation? Believers have. Believers who have a credible profession of faith. And so that's just something to mark down if you ever have the question, why are we Baptists when there's these other denominations? And so verse 22, talking about Jesus Christ, Peter writes, who has gone into heaven... And is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Now, verse 22 is sort of like a capstone to the exaltation of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, verse 18 tells us of the suffering of Jesus Christ, where he humbles himself to the point of dying on the cross for sinners. Then by the time we get to verse 22, he has gone into heaven and he is seated at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. He is seated with the majesty on high. He has accomplished the redemption of his particular people. He has been vindicated by his father. He is seated at his right hand all Things are being subjected to him. And what it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 about the resurrection of Jesus Christ is that he is reigning and he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. You see, Christ is Lord. Christ is King. And so Peter is talking about suffering for righteousness' sake and all of the hostility against Christians, and what does Peter do? He includes a statement that Jesus suffered. He's king. This universe this is his. History acting according to God's providence. He is king. And he is reigning. And he will reign until he puts all his enemies under his feet. Christians, this, we have a lot of enemies. We really, really do, especially in our culture. And God may allow us to go through a period of great suffering. What is this text saying? It's saying that Christ has gone into heaven and he's sitting at the right hand of God and angels, authorities, and powers are being subjected to him. Listen, there is not an enemy that is going to come about that is going to disrupt or destroy the kingdom of God. He must reign. Until he has destroyed all his enemies, the last enemy being death. And so here's why I said at the outset that not only is this a difficult passage, but it's also a beautiful passage, because we have these pictures of going down only to come up again. The overarching theme and flow is what I've described as the two states of Christ, his humiliation. Where he goes down in his exaltation where he comes back up again now it is in this context of peter writing to these believers they're living in this hostile world they're suffering there's hatred towards them because of their faith it's a dark it's a lowly way of living that's why they are referred to as elect exiles sojourners strangers in this life well here's this cause for encouragement and, and i hope that we can all take this to heart peter says look to jesus Look at how how low down he made himself to be for our sake, to redeem us. Look how highly he's ascended. While his enemies on earth thought they had him, they stripped him, flogged him. Uh, When Jesus, when, when Pilate gives Jesus over to the Roman officials who are ultimately going to put him to death, we read and this is in the Gospel of John, that Jesus is slapped, slapped on the face. I mean, mean, treated like dirt. Treated like nothing. Slap him on the face is what they did. Nail him to a cross. Hang him up there. They go. They want to speed up the process. So they're going to break the legs of the men who are Hanging there and they look at Jesus and they say, oh, he's already dead. They pierce him with a spear. Blood and water comes out. They got him. The enemies, they, they did what they were planning on doing. They, they really did. What does Jesus do? The third day he rises. For what does the scripture say? The men who did that to Jesus... They were acting according to their desires. All they were doing is what God's hand had foreordained to occur. They were fighting against themselves. They were serving the kingdom. This this is where the wisdom of God shows the foolishness of men. You men who crucified my Savior, who crucified the King of Kings... You think you won? You were doing what his hand had foreordained to occur. His hand had predestined to occur. Sure, you did what you want to do. This was what I intended for you to do. See how you are serving me? He is putting his enemies under his feet and he will reign until he destroys every last one of them. And we get these two illustrations of Noah in the ark, where they go down in the flood. The Spirit of Christ through Noah is preaching to the men who are being disobedient and were acting wickedly and sinfully. They, they, they go down in the flood only for God's providence and grace through the ark to bring them into safety. We get this illustration of baptism, which corresponds to this, symbolizing our death to sin. Are dying and being raised again to walk in newness of life. So Christian, this, this is what's going on here. Don't be encouraged, don't be discouraged, excuse me, when they put you down. Don't be discouraged when they slander you, when they hate you, when you are suffering in this life. Do you not know what it is that God does? He brings you down. To raise you up again. Look at Noah. Oh, how Noah was mocked and he was ridiculed in his day by wicked men who hated God. Well, look at what God did. Though he was down in the flood, don't you know that God brought him up again? Oh, dear ones, look to Jesus. Look at his death and his suffering on the cross only to rise again to sit at the right hand of the Father, the right hand of the majesty on high, having all his Enemies become a footstool for his feet. And beloved Christian, would you not look to your baptism? Look back to to your baptism, which is a reminder that as Christ died once for sins, you too have died. You have come out of the waters to walk in newness of life. I no longer live for myself. I live for the resurrected and living Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You may be suffering now. But in the life to come, you will not be. For you may be down in the flood right now. My loved ones, there is coming a day when you will be raised up again. For God has always worked with his children in this way. He determines that they should suffer. And that when they do so, they will be brought into something new. Something greater than they've ever had or experienced before. So take heart. Do not be anxious, but lean on Jesus' strong and everlasting arms, for what goes down will come up again. Let's go to him in prayer. Father God, Father, we just, we just thank you for the blessings that we have in Christ. We thank you for how you so mercifully dealing with us sinners, just like those wicked men and women in the days of Noah who were disobedient, oh God, we have transgressed you. Father, we have sinned in our own hearts. But you show your love for us. And that while we were yet sinners, you, you send your Son on the cross to die for us. The Holy Spirit applies this truth to our hearts, regenerates us, brings us to new life, dear God. We just thank you for that. Father, we... We just pray that your name and your word and your truth were honored and glorified in the service. Father God, we just, I just pray that these words of Scripture would prove to give encouragement and assurance and, and, and would be the daily bread for my listeners here tonight, dear God. It's Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.